Hi there. From Commando.com, this is the Commando On Demand podcast, where we talk to industry movers and shakers to keep you up to date on everything digital. And in this podcast, you're going to learn about notorious criminal cases that were solved using forensic data. And we're also going to discuss the DNA data banks. Have you heard about these? Well, if you haven't already, you better listen up. All that and more is coming right up. Last week, investigators in California arrested a man they believe is the Golden State Killer. People put bars on their windows. Uh, People uh, had guns in their homes. You were talking about people who slept in shifts. Some would stay up all night, some would take half the night, the others, and just watching, prepared with a gun in case anybody would come in. First thing I see is he's standing there and he's holding the flashlight like this, and he's got a revolver in his hand. With this guy, the next rape could be anywhere. He came in, he had a ski mask on, and jumped on the bed and had a knife. And there was a man shining this flashlight in my eyes with a ski mask on, holding a large butcher knife. My husband was home. We went to bed. Our bedroom door opens, and all I see is a flashlight. He knew he had leather gloves on. I could hear him. I could feel them. He told us with clenched teeth, shut up or I'll kill you. The night was May 3rd, 1986, when 18-year-old Janelle Cruz's parents were away on vacation. A friend who spent time at Janelle's house with her that evening later recalled being startled at least twice by some strange noises outside and in the garage. But Janelle and her friend ignored the sounds. Did you hear that? But fate was sealed when her friend left. Janelle was home alone. And the following morning of May 4th, 1986, a real estate agent came to Janelle's home to conduct a showing only to find a brutal crime scene. Janelle had been raped and bludgeoned to death with shattered teeth and a bloodied face. She was pretty much unrecognizable. Who, police wondered, could have carried out such an awful murder? The only clues they had were tennis shoe prints in the soil outside the house and a heavy wrench missing from the backyard. Investigators initially zeroed in on those close to Janelle Cruz. They looked into the last people who had seen her alive, her family members, her former boyfriends, But quickly, the case went cold. Although police assembled a rape kit, DNA testing of the crime scene was still in its infancy back in those days. So the kit was placed in storage for many years. Time passed and the Cruz family tried their best to move on while knowing Janelle's killer was someplace still out there. This was the case for the families of many victims who had been slain by Janelle's murderer. And while they had no way of knowing in 1986 when Janelle was killed, Janelle Cruz would be the last known victim of the Golden State Killer, ending the decade-long crime spree of one of the most sadistic serial killers and rapists in American history. Now, 30 years later, thanks to DNA forensics, the case is finally cracked, and the perpetrator is someone no one ever suspected. So who is this man that all these reporters mentioned in such horror? Well, for the span of four decades, criminal investigators wonder the same thing. I'm America's digital pro, Kim Commando. Before we really get started in this podcast and learn more about DNA forensics and DNA government databases, first, a word of thanks to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. I'm talking about Quip, a brand new type of toothbrush you have to know about. All right, I know. 
You've had parents and teachers and dentists telling you how to brush your teeth your whole life. And it seems like everybody has a different technique. One thing that they all can agree on is that you have to brush your teeth for a full two minutes. I've been telling my son Ian that for years, Ah, but not anymore. I have a quip and so does Ian. Quip is electric. It's small. It's light. It's sleek. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you, are you ready for it? Yes, switch sides. You don't have to guess anymore. With Quip, new brush heads are automatically delivered, just like the dentists recommend every three months for just $5, so you can just forget about it. Try Quip and see why it's backed by more than 20,000 dental professionals and me and my son Ian. We both love our Quip. Quip starts at just $25. That's it. Visit getquip.com slash tech right now, and you're going to get a deal. You get your first refill pack for free with any Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free. Yes, absolutely free. Head over to getquip.com slash tech. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash tech. Hey, welcome back. Maybe you've heard the chilling tales already of the Golden State Killer who over the course of his killing spree, was also known as the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, and the East Bay Rapist. Finally, in a shocking discovery after the cold case was reopened and solved over 40 years later, on April 24, 2018, authorities charged 72-year-old U.S. Navy veteran and former police officer Joseph D'Angelo with eight counts of first-degree murder. Get this, the shocking discovery of this culprit is a victory of forensic DNA technology. Since its introduction in the mid-1980s, forensic DNA testing has played an important role in the criminal justice community. It's aided in the conviction of the guilty and exoneration of the innocent. Remains from missing persons and victims of mass disasters have been reassociated and identified through linking these reference samples to recovered remains. DNA analysis provides these capabilities not found in almost all the other forensic disciplines. And it's clear this is only the start for crime solving with DNA. Forensic DNA consultant Vicka Barlow weighed in on how they discovered the identity of the Golden State Killer. Um, The gentleman who was arrested was not in the state database and that the laboratory somehow knew who he was or the police and went to pick up something he left behind and used that as a DNA sample. Bika's speculation was right. When police reopened the investigation, they reportedly found a genetic link to D'Angelo's great-great-grandparents in GED Match. This is an open data and personal genomics database and genealogy website. We'll talk more about sites like this in a moment. But Joseph D'Angelo's grandparents weren't enough to lead policemen right to him. And even once they speculated that he was the culprit, but they didn't have the matching DNA to convict him. So they took drastic measures. They totally watched D'Angelo for a while and waited for him to publicly discard an item that would certainly contain his DNA. We're not sure which item was collected for the DNA sampling, but they were finally able to get their hands on it. Maybe it was a cup. It could have been a Kleenex or just a bit of leftover food. Whatever it was, when police analyzed the DNA and compared it to the DNA taken from the Golden State Killer crime scenes, there was a match. This confirmation came on April 20th, but they couldn't make the arrest until they collected a second discarded object from D'Angelo 
because they needed a second DNA test to confirm the finding. Well, finally, they got it, and D'Angelo was arrested the next day. You might be wondering if this discovery may have been possible without the website we mentioned, GED Match. It's surprising to realize that so much of what police can use to assist them in investigations that is voluntarily supplied by citizens who simply want to learn more about their ancestry, create some family trees. Bika Barlow spoke to the growing database of genetic information. It's always expanding, and, and it's getting close to 3 million people now. Um, and, you know, having a database can be useful for certain types of crimes, but it presumes that the person who committed the crime is actually in the database, right. and that's not always true. It's important to know that the genetic information found in DNA analysis from people who submit their DNA to websites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe aren't currently accessible to police. GED Match doesn't have the same laws, which is why it was the primary site used to track the Golden State Killer. But does it upset you that your genetic information could be utilized without your consent in an investigation to convict a family member, maybe a distant cousin, maybe someone you don't even realize is related to you? Some people see this as a major ethical issue. While the folks in GED Match's database voluntarily submit their DNA information, Not everyone realizes that that means they're giving consent to the government to use that information. They consider it private information. Here's the deal. People who are considering genetic testing and uploading to GED Match, they have to assume that this data is going to be used by companies, law enforcement, and foreign governments. And of course, you know what the problem is. Hardly anybody reads terms and conditions or the fine lines. So the issue of ethics remains as a flurry of concerns about privacy come up. There's no telling how many people in a public database are being subjected to what some folks are beginning to call genetic stop and frisk, but not everyone sees this massive genetic information now accessible to police investigators and who knows who as necessarily a bad thing. But is it? Cold case investigator Steve Croft spoke on the emerging capabilities. In talking to the cops, they are chomping at the bit. When you've made an arrest in a 40-some-odd-year-old cold case that terrorized Northern California, it's hard to argue that this, you know, hey, we should put the brakes on this. You know, who's going to be the person who's going to say to the family of those victims, no, sorry, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the horses have left the stable. I don't think they're going to go back in, you know. One woman who has taken the forensic DNA industry by storm is Cece Moore. She's been called the woman who solves crime from her couch. And her first success came less than a month after the Golden State Killer was identified. It involved crime scene DNA from an unsolved 1987 double murder near Seattle. Coming up, we're going to talk more about this, and you can learn exactly how she was able to solve this crime. But first, a quick word from our sponsors in this podcast, because they help make it possible. Okay, you're back. So what was this case, and how did C.C. Moore crack it? Well, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Koylenborg were a couple from British Columbia traveling in the Cook family van heading to Seattle to pick something up for Cook's father. They were last seen purchasing a ticket around 10 p.m. in Bremerton, Washington, to board a ferry to Seattle, but they never made it there. Several days later, 18-year-old Tanya's body was found partly clothed, dumped in a ditch in a wooden area in Washington. Police said that she'd been raped. Cook's body, on the other hand, 
was found near the river. For the past 30 years, evidence found at the scenes of the killings was almost confined to a blue blanket wrapped around Cook's body, an abandoned bronze Ford Club wagon, and the killer's DNA. C.C. Moore was a genealogist on the case. She used the alleged killer's genotype file to identify relatives who shared, quote, promising amount of DNA with him on the GED match database. Those relatives were apparently at the second cousin level. And from there, she just started filling in the family tree until finally two family trees with DNA matching to that of the suspected killer converged through a marriage. The couple had only one son. That meant only one person could carry that particular mix of DNA found at the crime scene. And that person is William Earl Tabbitt II. And just like the Golden State Killer case, investigators had to watch Talbot and wait for just the right opportunity to collect DNA from him to be cross-checked with the DNA that was left at the crime scene. When Talbot dropped a paper cop on the side of the street, investigators grabbed it. They submitted it to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab for testing. And get this, it was a match. Talbot was arrested outside his workplace in Seattle earlier this year. He would have been 24 at the time of the killings and living in Woodenville, Washington in the year 1987. His parents lived seven miles from where Cook's body was found. The motive is unknown, but family members of the victims expressed feelings of closure and relief that the killer had finally been found and would be brought to justice. For my family and I, it is our first day without the weight the burden, the hurting that comes from not knowing who killed my brother Jay and his sweet, shy girlfriend, Tanya. But this was only one of C.C. Moore's DNA victories. But we wanted to hear about the kind of expertise it requires to utilize GED Match and conduct forensic investigation. C.C. Moore admits that this genetic investigation for her, well, it started out as a little more than just a hobby. I was a genealogist, just hobbyist. And I've always loved genetics. It's not my career in the past. I wasn't trained in it, but I've always been drawn to it and always really loved it. And so when autosomal DNA was uh, introduced for genealogical purposes by 23andMe, I jumped in with both feet. I was so excited. Uh, It was actually Catherine Borges, who is the director of ISOG, who first showed me what they were doing. And I just fell madly in love and it completely took over my life. So it went from being a hobby to a full-time volunteer position and now a career. And part of that was starting my blog. I was answering a lot of questions all the time of people who needed help right away. And so I wanted a way to be able to answer those questions and not have to keep repeating the same answers over and over. I was also doing some really fascinating research with my own family and wanted to have a place to write that up. And um, I was corresponding with 23andMe a lot, people who worked over there. Right away, I established a good relationship with them. And it was actually one of them who uh, recommended that I start a blog. It was Alex from 23andMe. He's not there anymore, but he was one of the early um, employees there. And he said, you know, you should write a blog. And so I'd never done anything like that. And I enjoyed it right off the bat. It was so fun to share my research and get input from everybody and help people learn what to do with their results as well. And it's grown into something I never could have imagined. Looking at my analytics is just amazing. Almost from the very beginning, there was people from Stanford and 
Harvard and um, governmental agencies reading it, uh, universities all over the world. So it just literally blew my mind. I mean, I thought I would just have a few genealogists reading it, but I think it was the right time, the right thing at the right time. There weren't many blogs. Blaine Bettinger, the genetic genealogist, had been writing since 2007, but he was really the only one doing it. And um, he's an attorney, so he was pretty busy and wasn't writing as much. So there was a real opening for me. So it was one of those niche things that just worked out and turned out to be this amazing thing that I never could have planned. It really is an inspiration to learn that Cece has been able to help so many people through this unexpected career path. The cases of the Golden State Killer isn't the only time that DNA has been used like this. Another particularly notable criminal investigation that heavily relied on DNA data began after the fateful evening, January 8, 1993. On that night, seven people were killed in the Brown's Chicken and Pasta restaurant in a suburb of Chicago. The victims included the two owners and five employees, totaling seven victims in all. The assailants stole less than $2,000 from the restaurant. More than five and a half hours after the 9 p.m. closing, Palatine police arrived at the crime scene after receiving a call from a concerned young employee's parents. When officers arrived on the scene, they spotted their rear employee's door open, and inside, they found the seven bodies that had been stabbed to death, some face down, some face up, inside the restaurant's walk-in refrigerator. That evening, brutal violence was carried out so senselessly. The years that followed brought no solace to the families of the victims. Fortunately, the local police identified and retrieved two partially eaten pieces of chicken, which they found in the garbage during the crime scene investigation. Those two partially eaten pieces of chicken were kept in a freezer for years after the crime. You see, DNA testing at that point Well, it wasn't so sophisticated enough to carry out any DNA profiles from any traces of human saliva. But as time passed, investigators slowly moved on from the case. And seven years later, that DNA testing arrived. The technology was there. Two DNA profiles were found. These profiles didn't match any of the crime victims or the suspects that the police had at the time. Two years after that, in March of 2002... More than nine years after the murders, a woman by the name of Ann Lockett came forward and supplied the name of her former boyfriend, James Degorski, and his associate, Juan Luna. She claimed that her boyfriend called her the evening of the murder after it happened and told her, keep an eye on the news that evening. He told her he'd done something big. Since this tip gave police a warrant to obtain DNA samples from the suspects, police investigators were able to run DNA tests and compare the results to those of the DNA that was found in the saliva on the chicken pieces. Juan Luna's DNA was a match. A month later, the two suspects were arrested and charged with the murders. Though both are currently in jail, there was dissent surrounding the way the DNA evidence was handled. Luna's defense argued unsuccessfully that the DNA evidence against him should not be allowed because the chicken pieces were retested on multiple occasions and handled by scientists who acknowledged they didn't wear gloves. This is where DNA evidence faces a lot of opposition. Many argue DNA evidence should not be the ruling factor in criminal case convictions because it's easy for the DNA people who aren't guilty to transfer their DNA to places they may not have intended. So was it possible that Juan Luna had visited the chicken restaurant earlier that day and simply not finished his meal? 
The prosecution doesn't believe so, and Luna and Degorski were still found guilty on all seven counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison. But this does bring up concerns surrounding the implications of a world where DNA information is available to the government and police at such a widespread level. The potential of innocent citizens being persecuted for crimes they didn't commit is there. After all, your DNA can travel by means of other people. So what does that mean? Well, let's say you happen to grab your morning coffee from the barista, and in the exchange, his or her wrist brushes against your hand. Later that day, they're the victim of a murder case. Now, despite the brief nature of your interaction with that barista, it's possible that your DNA is still on them. So would it be fair for police to arrest you that maybe because of some way you've been in contact with that individual on the day that they died? Well, absolutely not. This is what those against DNA crime solving fear most. And in recent years, the fear has gained real-world weight as this sort of circumstance is exactly what happened to Lucas Anderson when he was wrongly charged with a murder that took place in Silicon Valley in 2012. Don't believe me? It's certainly a wild story, but it's something you need to know about, especially as we talk about all the technology advancements in forensic genealogy. Before he was charged with a murder, Lucas Anderson was a 26-year-old homeless alcoholic who regularly hustled for change in downtown San Jose. Around midnight on November 29, 2012, a group of men broke into victim Ravish Kumra's 7,000-square-foot mansion. They found him watching TV in the living room, tied him, blindfolded him, and then gagged him with duct tape. Upstairs, the criminals found his companion, Harinder, asleep in the bedroom upstairs. They hit her on the mouth and tied her up next to Ravish while they plundered the house for cash and jewelry. When they left, Harinda made her way to the kitchen phone while blindfolded and called 911. Ravish was declared dead as he suffocated from the tape on his mouth. Three and a half weeks later, the police arrested Anderson, whose DNA had been found on Ravish's fingernails. When these DNA results came out, Anderson tried to make sense of the crime but he had no memory of committing it. RT correspondent Brigida Santos released the news on the wrongful conviction of Lucas Anderson in May of this year. In 2012, a homeless alcoholic man named Lucas Anderson was charged with first-degree murder when his DNA was found on the body of a murder victim who had been killed in a home invasion. Now, his DNA was specifically on the murder victim's uh, fingernails. And the way that they got there was through a process called secondary transfer. All that means is that as humans, we leave our cells everywhere we go. In fact, we shed about 50 million skin cells per day. And those cells, our DNA, can then get picked up and moved around by a third party. So that's all that means. It turns out that on the night of this murder, Lucas Anderson had been passed out drunk in a hospital. Now, he could not remember where he was that night. So police, when they asked him about his whereabouts, he said he had no recollection. He also had a previous history uh, and one conviction for a home invasion. And that's how this man was murdered. So it did not look good for him. But his lawyer did uh, retrace his steps. And she was able to find out that he was actually innocent of this crime and that he had never met the murder victim. So what led investigators to question the DNA that was initially used to implicate Anderson in that crime? Anderson's public defender, as she was building his defense, came across some files, including his medical records. And they proved that on that night when the murder was taking place, he was in the hospital 
Now, experts believe that his DNA, Anderson's DNA, made its way onto the victim's fingernails through some of the paramedics' equipment, uh, most likely through a finger oxygen reader that they had used on Anderson and then later on used on the victim. This means that two people who never even meet each other can have the other's DNA on them just because of a shared object they came into contact with. It's really scary to consider when you think about how many objects you come into contact with every day while out in public. How many of those objects have transferred your DNA to someone you've never met before, maybe even someone who's present at the scene of a crime? But just as forensic genealogy can be used to wrongfully incriminate innocent citizens whose DNA happens to have similarities with the real suspect, new DNA technology can also be used to help exonerate those who have been wrongfully convicted. That's the exact objective of the Innocence Project. This project was founded by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld in 1992. And it has since freed more than 350 wrongfully convicted people based on post-conviction DNA testing. Twenty of those innocent civilians who had been wrongfully convicted have spent time on death row. Additionally, 150 real perpetrators have been found and prosecuted. And with figures like these, it's hard to go on arguing that DNA technology advancements hold only negative implications. For example, Peter represented Earl Washington Jr., a mentally disabled man who spent 17 years in prison, nine of them on death row, for rape and murder that DNA proved he did not commit. Peter showed that a state police officer had caused Washington's wrongful conviction by first feeding him information about the crime that only the true perpetrator would know, and then falsely claiming this non-public information had actually originated with Washington. After Peter argued the appeal, the Fourth Circuit agreed that the investigator could be held legally responsible for fabricating Washington's false confession. Okay, a substantial verdict for Mr. Washington followed. The Fourth Circuit fabricated confession theory was then adopted by other federal circuits. The Washington case also led to an audit of the Virginia State Crime Lab and the prosecution of the true perpetrator. There is currently debate on whether those convicted of minor felonies in the state of California should have to supply their DNA. Many believe that a world in which DNA files are more accessible, well, those who do wrongfully commit murders will be more quickly found and prosecuted. These cases are just the beginning for forensic DNA analysis crime solving, especially with the Golden State Killer's arrest. It's likely that the social dialogue will increase surrounding DNA privacy issues. As government officials and criminal investigators hone the ways in which they use this emerging forensic technology, the prospects become both hopeful and also concerning. You see, there's this whole generation giving up genetic privacy in the name of learning more about their roots. Where do they come from? Why do they have blue eyes? They're using sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. But what if that seemingly innocent information has but what if that seemingly innocent information has other consequences? No one can deny that forensic DNA technology has brought significant benefits to law enforcement. It's contributed to the resolution of a number of crimes, as well as the exoneration of wrongfully convicted people. But today's National DNA Data Bank is a far cry from the one that was envisioned 20 years ago. It's moved well beyond its initial role as an important tool for use in criminal investigations. And it's emerged maybe as an instrument for surveillance that reaches broadly across the population to individuals who have never been charged or convicted of a crime. Okay, there's no doubt we all want to help solve crime. 
But the fact that crime occurs does not justify the erosion of any basic human privacy protections. One of the most fundamental principles of our country is that a balance must always be retained between safety and freedom. Where technology developments challenge or disrupt that balance, a strong call for the protection of our civil liberties and a clear, rational proposal for restoring this balance is needed. But even if these ethical issues are considered, it's hard, if not impossible, to refute how helpful these technologies can be in reopening cold cases and determining long-pursued culprits. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. Hey, stay up to date with all the Commando articles and podcasts with the Commando app. It's free, and you get notifications for podcasts like this one and the very latest articles on everything digital and those security alerts. And if you like this podcast, do me a favor. Don't forget to subscribe. Head over to iTunes, Google Play, and also give us a great five-star rating and review us because that helps us better our podcasts and also helps more people to find our podcasts. And that's what it's all about. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. And I'll see you on the radio for the Kim Commando Show.